0: It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame and you got the, and there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll that always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh,
1: Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you
0: in South Bend because you are probably cost around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen.
2: Welcome everybody to another edition of Pot of Gold, and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together we cover Notre Dame football for Indy Insider and the South Bend Tribune. The Pot of Gold podcast is brought to you by Zaxby's. Satisfy your craving for hand-breaded chicken and fresh-made salads. Stop by your neighborhood Zaxby's today or order online at zaxby's.com forward slash podcast. And Tire Rack: the way tire buying should be. Notre Dame turned a shaky start into a blowout 40-7 victory against Boston College on Saturday to register a third straight win of more than 30 points. The Irish will look to finish the regular season with another victory on Saturday at Stanford, a place the Irish haven't won since 2007. That's so long ago, Eric, that I was a freshman in college when that happened, and our guest on today's podcast was a member of the Houston Texans. We've invited former Notre Dame running back Darius Walker to speak with us today. Darius worked as an analyst on NBC Sports Network's Notre Dame fan feed broadcast of the Boston College game. And he rushed for 3,249 yards in his three seasons with the Irish, which is fourth best in program history. Darius, thanks for joining us.
0: Well, it's certainly a pleasure to be with you guys. I appreciate the time. You guys do so much good work. I'm humbled to be here. <laughs>
2: well, all right. That's quite the honor. You
0: are the guest of the year then. <laughs> <laughs> First off,
2: Darius, I-, I-, I wanted to get your thoughts on-, on the fan feed experience. What was that like for you and in- doing that this past weekend?
0: Well, I gotta say it was. I came into it with a little bit of skepticism, um, and I said it because like a lot of the work, at least from a broadcasting perspective, that I've done is like hard game analysis, um, like all the X's and O's, and trying to break that down and think through that. So when NBC kind of approached me with this idea, I, the reason I thought it was cool was because one of the things I get asked all the time out is like, what do you think about the football team? How how do you feel about Notre Dame? So I thought, wow, here's a platform to kind of give people that insight. So it sounded intriguing, but I certainly was skeptical because it wasn't as X and O focused. But I got to say, I had a blast. Um, I'm not sure exactly how it came off for everyone else who was watching it, but I was certainly kind of giddy at the opportunity because it, it it was really fun to do.
2: Well, I I did watch the the fan feed and I did see lots of tweets and people talking on Twitter that they were very impressed with you. So you did a good job and and uh, if you were skeptical, they they said no one no one could know. So um, I, I wanted to <laughs> shift to to the team now. What do you think um, of how the Irish are playing and and how they've they've handled the the losses to Georgia and Michigan and rebounded this season.
0: Well, I mean, I, I think it's it's gone incredible. I mean, you have to look at Coach Kelly and, and, and take your hat off to him with what they've been able to do specifically at Notre, inside Notre Dame Stadium. I mean, to do that two years in a row, to not lose a game at home, is, is just impressive. And, and I don't know that you can point to too many programs across the country that have been able to do that over the last two years. Um, so I, I commend the staff for, for, for their, their, you know, perseverance through, you know, a couple of losses in the year. And I think what happens sometimes, uh, you know, with Notre Dame football is that since we're, we're on such a national stage and scale, I think sometimes people get a little, I'm not sure what the right word is, but I think they get slightly slightly overzealous on the expectations of the team. You know, because I have folks who, who reach out to me now and say, hey, Notre Dame lost games this year, what's going on? And I'm just like, I don't get it. Like, do they expect Notre Dame to literally win every single game no matter who's on the field, no matter <laughs> yes, what? Yes, yes they do. Is, no matter what <laughs> do. So I just I don't see it as plausible all the time, uh, in terms of thinking that they will never lose a game. Now in saying that, I do I do share some sentiment in, in, in that, you know, like the Michigan game for example, you just certainly have to play better there. Uh, I think it's more of, you know, in the big moments and in the big games, how we show up, whether it's, you know, losing or winning in those. Um, I think everyone would just love to see tight margins in those games where, you know, you're in it in the fourth quarter and you got a chance uh, to win it. So I certainly understand from that perspective. But I just think expectation wise for the season to go to have the chance to go 10 and 2, that's an incredible year. I mean, I, I remember in my time at Notre Dame under Tyrone Willingham and Charlie Weiss, I don't think we ever had a 10-2 season. And so um, it's, it's applaudable and commendable what the team's been able to do this year.
1: Darius, I wanted to get your take on the running back situation. You know, Ian Book has been the leading rusher for the last four games. I know that didn't happen when you were playing, that the quarterback led them in rushing, led you guys in rushing. Brady didn't lead you in rushing. <laughs> Uh, but right. but I wondered what your thoughts were about what's working for them well, what, what maybe you see as what's holding them back.
0: Yeah, so it's, it's a good question, and it's certainly something that I look at quite a bit when I watch just Notre Dame and football in general over the years. Having been a running back, I kind of focus on that a lot when I'm watching the games and seeing it. And I just, I, there's certainly been some some turnover on the offensive line this year, you know, on the right side, specifically losing, you know, both starters at the right guard and the right tackle position. That certainly has had an impact, I think, on the running game. But I think it's more about just, you know, someone being able to step up and be the go-to guy for every situation. It just kind of seems like, and Brian Kelly's talks about this a lot, like, you know, it's a running back by committee. I've got three or four different guys that do three or four different things well. That's why we play so many guys. And while I understand that perspective, I I think that you have to, at least at the running back position, in my experience, you have to kind of focus on one, maybe two players, because it's so hard to get in a rhythm out there if you're in and out every other play, or if you're only in there one series and then someone else is coming at the next series. If you don't have the consistency, it's kind of hard to really like feel the game and get into a groove in a way that, that allows you to break off big runs and eat up a whole bunch of yardage from the running back position. So, you know, my take has always been, I understand that right now we're focusing on as committee, I just would like for there to be the one or two guys who are the main guys the entire time, uh, barring injury, um, but like solidifying a guy or two, um, and, and focusing on it that way. So to me, I think that that's probably a little bit of the reason why we haven't had as much consistency, consistency at the running back this season anyway is just because we're moving a lot of guys in and out. Now, some of that's injury. Some of that is you know specialty, whether short yardage or what. But it's hard to really get in a flow if you don't have those consistent reps all game.
2: Darius, I, I know you talked about uh, guys wanting to get the ball out and create a rhythm. I know Tony Jones Jr., um, spoke to that earlier in the season when things were starting to get going for him he felt like okay I'm getting a lot of the carries here and that's helping me get a sense for what's going on how the defense is reacting how our line is blocking but he also has has dealt with a rib injury and it seems like he might not be quite the same as he was since then and Jafar Armstrong certainly has dealt with an injury um, this year and even when he's come back he hasn't necessarily looked like himself uh, how hard is it to sustain a high level of play um, through injuries at the running back position. I would imagine that's maybe one of the harder positions to do that at.
0: Uh, yeah, I certainly would agree there. i I, I got to tell you guys, a lot of it is luck. Um, <laughs> to be playing at this part of the season, to be playing at this part of the season for anyone who's been out there for a considerable time, you're dealing with some kind of injury. Something's nagging you. It could be a groin, it could be a quad, you know, a shoulder or whatever. So like making it through the end of the year and towards the end of the year and being at call it seventy five percent really takes a lot of luck. Um now I do know that the strength and conditioning staff has a lot of impact in that because what you do in the off season, how you're how you're building up your muscles and your joints and your conditioning, all that has an impact, especially later on in the year, but a lot of it is just gonna be luck, to be honest with you. You know, I, I was fortunate enough my three years as a running back, I never began to get through a lot of it unscathed. But I mean, even for me, I had a dislocated shoulder one year, one game, or one year, my sophomore year. I had a quad contusion that was probably one of my worst injuries in my football career. Even at the even after the NFL level, um, which I, which happened my freshman year. So uh, it, it's going to boil down to just kind of being lucky in those moments and in those times. Um, but the one thing I will say, especially for Tony Jones, like I, I've been watching these games, and, I, and I'm sure it's been pointed out by a few folks, but his pass protection is really kind of second to none. And I I sort of marvel at that because when I was at Notre Dame and we had Brady Quinn as a quarterback and Charlie Weiss as a a coach, we threw the ball quite a bit, especially my sophomore and junior (laughs) year. So I had to get really good at not only picking up pass pro, but also catching the ball out of the backfield, becoming a wide receiver um, in some respects. But like that pass pro is, is something you have to commit to, one, but it really takes a a differentiated mindset for a running back to stick his nose in there every time, knowing that he's going to get hit by a defensive lineman or a linebacker at full speed. Like to consistently commit to that is commendable. And it's not something that's consistent across the board. with running backs just judging from my experience. But, um, you know, cause when I watch him, he stays up on a lot of the blocks too. You know, I remember when I was, when, got, when I had big guys coming at me and I had pass for, I'm trying to chop them. As much as possible, there, but Tony Jones
1: doesn't do that, so I, I'm impressed with his with his pass Sure, Darius, there's a young man by the name of Chris Tyree that's going to sign with Notre Dame in December. Supposedly, he's the fastest high school player in the country based on all these testing events that he's gone to. You know, I, I if my memory serves me correctly, Tyrone didn't think you were ready that first game your freshman year, but but you sure were against Michigan. Um, what does he face as a freshman, both from his teammates, from winning over coaches, and from just going out and playing college football, you think?
0: I think the biggest thing is going to be sort of his mindset and how he sees himself. And what I kind of mean by that is when I came in my freshman year, the main thing that I was always thinking about at practice and then especially when it got to game time, uh, even that Michigan game, for example, I, I, I felt like I belonged like, in my mind, I was supposed to be one of the best running backs on the team as a 17, 18-year-old. So I think if he's got the mindset that he believes that already, then when he faces adversity, similar to what I what I did where I, you know, I didn't even travel with the team to BYU our first game uh, my freshman year, I wasn't even on the bus Um But despite that, since I thought of myself a certain way when I got the call the next week, it didn't impact me that I wasn't there the week prior, if that makes sense. So I think he's going to face some adversity, whether that is not playing as as soon as he would like to play, as it was for me, or you know uh, not feeling like he's feeling comfortable out there and understanding the playbook. You've got to face that adversity early, but if he believes that he belongs, I think he'll be able to make that transition much sooner than maybe some other players do.
2: You're listening to the pot of gold podcast presented by Zaxby's before we hear more from Darius Walker. Let's take a short break. Darius, I'm curious when uh, an offense is maybe having some struggles running the ball, uh, how do the running back and the offensive line groups kind of mesh with each other and, and maybe not trying to blame each other and, and work through these issues and try to get better from it rather than maybe blaming each other and, and it, it not improving?
0: I think this is where the creativity really kind of can come in. Uh, you know, I've had plenty of games at Notre Dame and in Houston with the Texans or in Denver with the Broncos where. It's not going right on the ground game. For whatever reason, you're not making it all click, So you get creative and try to find ways to put not only football in the running back's hand, but allow the offensive line to have a bigger impact influence on that. So what I'm referring to is the screen game. I think the screen game has got to be something that, that should be utilized most when you're having trouble running the football because it does allow both not only the running back to get the ball in his hands, but some space. I think it also helps build a little bit of confidence for that offensive line because they can get out and shed blocks and get key blocks on the outside to help them get the momentum and get their, their mojo going, if you will, for the game. That was something that, that Charlie Weiss was incredible at. When we had issues or we weren't running the ball as effectively as we wanted. I mean, sometimes Charlie White will call a screen back-to-back. And I remember when we played Georgia Tech, I think it was my sophomore year, in 2005, we called screen plays back-to-back. And the first one went for maybe 10 yards, and then he called the same screen play just to the right side of the offensive line instead of the left side of you know, the first play, and it went for like 60 yards for a touchdown. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's where you can really get creative and say, all right, if we're not gelling on the offensive line or running the football effectively as we should, let's get creative and call some screen plays. Let's figure out ways to get this offensive line running. The ball and the running back's in a little bit of a different situation. I think when you have some success in the screen game, it starts to back the defense up. But you're also building confidence on that offensive line and the running back, then the running game starts to open up a bit.
1: Darius, if I remember right, you were a running back for a long time before you showed up at Notre Dame. Two of their better options may be potentially Javar Armstrong and Avery Davis Warrant. Jafar was a wide receiver, a prolific wide receiver and a track guy in high school in Kansas. Avery was a really good option, or not option quarterback, but dual threat quarterback in Texas. What do you feel like is the biggest challenge for those guys other than, you know, they're learning new plays and so forth. But just is it vision? Is it instinct? What What's maybe the challenge to for those guys to get playing time?
0: Yeah, I think it's the footwork, to be honest, because you know, at the wide receiver position, when you're in your stance and you're seeing the field, it's much different than where you are as a running back because as a running back, one of the things that becomes vital is something Charlie White used to talk a lot about, and it struck us a lot in our running back room, was like these pre step reads. So when you're at the line and you know the ball is going you know through the A-gap, then it's understanding where the Mike linebacker is positioned versus the defensive tackle and where a hole might be because you understand where your guard's going, where your tackle's going. So you're making this assumption, in your mind, before the ball is snapped, right? and that happens within three or four seconds when you get up to the line, you're assuming where you think it's going to go, but understanding that you still need to react. And so I think that when you have a guy who's been a wide receiver and you move him to the running back position, while he may be athletic and have speed and be able to make guys miss, he doesn't really understand the nuances of the pre-snap read. He's not able to think about that quickly in that moment so that when he gets the ball and now he's just trying to react as much as he would if he caught a slant, uh, for example. And so I think that that's what becomes important and is vital and is probably harder to do for someone going from the outside to the inside, those pre-snap reads.
2: Darius, we're getting towards the end of the season here, so we're starting to ask um, guys that have eligibility remaining if they're going to come back, if they're going to maybe go to the NFL. Um, I know you left early to to go to, into the NFL. What for those that are weighing NFL decision, what is this time of year like? Is it is it kind of hard to ignore and put that to the side? How did how did you handle all of that?
0: Yeah, um, it, it's definitely something that I think is in the back of a lot of folks' mind when you feel like you you've done a lot um, at the university and you feel like you kind of necessarily can't uh, you know can't really kind of break through the ceiling and do more. For me, the thing that I thought a lot about, especially after my junior year, was I had gotten so comfortable playing with Brady Quinn you know Jeff Samarja Maurice Stovall Raymond McKnight Uh, I had gotten comfortable playing with all these guys that were older than me you know a year older than me Mm -hmm. Ryan Harris is in that category too so I think because of that I realized that if I were to come back for my senior season it would be to play with guys that I really didn't have a whole lot of experience playing with to be frank And so that kind of helped the decision for me to say, all right, well, maybe now is the time for me to go because none of my, none of my, my cohorts are coming back. It's it's going to be a whole new crop. But I think for, for guys who are trying to figure that out now, um, at this time of the year, it really is kind of going to boil down to, Did I complete what I felt like I set out to do at Notre Dame? You know, for me, at the time, I was, you know, fourth all time, you know, in career rushing yards. I had set the freshman rushing record. So I felt like I had left a little bit of a legacy at Notre Dame already after my junior year, which again made it a little easier for me to say, all right, I'm going to boat off and and go into the NFL. Uh, but the last piece I'd also say is, is the schooling side. I mean, I came into Notre Dame with some A P credits. So I was only like nine credits shy of graduating after my junior year. So I knew I could come back and finish that fairly quickly without a big overhaul going back to school. So that was that'd be the third thing that I'd say for guys that are thinking about it is understand where you are in school. You want to get that degree, especially from Notre Dame. Figure out where you are there with how much more you need to do. But ultimately it's gonna boil down to, you know, am I coming back with uh, an opportunity to continue to build my legacy, one, and then two, you know, am I coming back with teammates and guys who I'm used to playing with uh, on this team because it makes sense there, and then the third thing being the schooling bar.
1: Darius, any regrets of the early decision after you saw them go 3-9 and nine? and after you didn't get drafted, did you second-guess right. yourself at all?
0: No, not, not, not at all. Um, I mean, I... I it, i some people have asked me you know if I knew that the team was gonna go three and nine <laughs> uh, <laughs> after I left. and, and my, my take was, was like listen, I didn't think that it would be that it would be at that level I just assumed that they that we wouldn't be as good as the previous you know two years two or three years that I was there but um to say that I expected that you know that, that's that's definitely short-sighted I, I didn't expect the team to, to to go three and nine um but I certainly don't have any regrets on it. You know, I, I was lucky enough even after my rookie year going undrafted to have the opportunity to to start my rookie year uh with the Texans. Um so I still got the, the opportunity. But um looking back on it, I certainly don't have any regrets to, to say that I that I came out early. I was sorry to see that, you know, Notre Dame didn't perform as well um that season as they had hoped. But I mean at that point in time, what are you gonna do? You know, I I, I came back um after my rookie year and that that next semester and graduated from Notre Dame so I got my degree so you know all the stuff that I was looking to, to get and accomplish I still was able to do um, but uh, it certainly was with no regrets from my side
2: Darius it's always interesting to see who ends up having a long NFL career, who doesn't and doesn't necessarily always have a correlation with, with college production. Certainly you were very productive in college but weren't able to stick on in the NFL for a very long time. Tavon Coney was a linebacker at Notre Dame last year, and he he can't seem to even make practice squads. This this year he had uh, a lot of production at, at the linebacker uh, position at, at Notre Dame. What, why do you think it, it didn't necessarily work out for you, and, and did it surprise you that, that it went the way it did?
0: You know, so I had the opportunity in that Notre Dame Fantasy to work with Dalen Hayes, mm-hmm. who is uh, coming back for his uh for his like uh, a sixth year, um, after being on injured reserve this year. And one of the things that we talked about was like the NFL. Like the one thing that I would say that I could point to in my career that was certainly different at, at the NFL level was the the lack of experience on special teams. Because when I was at Notre Dame, you know, I, I wasn't a kick returner, um, I wasn't a puck returner. You know, Townsend mm-hmm. he had that all sewed up for us. <laughs> so uh, I, I wasn't involved on the kickoff team, you know, running down the field. I wasn't involved on the punt team as a protector because I was a starting running back. So I think part of the part of the issue when you get to the next level is that the staying power really kind of revolves around two things: one, at your position, do you have the opportunity to be the number one or number two guy? You know, if you don't, then you have to be able to contribute special teams. And that's easier said than done, I think, for a lot of guys who are coming out of, you know, top notch programs like me for Notre Dame who didn't play special teams at all. You know, when I got to the NFL, the last time I had run down on a kickoff was like high school, maybe my (laughs) freshman year of high school. So like I just had zero um, experience in doing that. So it was vital for me to have to succeed as the number one or two running back. And there's just so many variables that go into that for each team where you're drafted, you know, where, what coach has come in, who they've traded for, what they're looking for team dynamics are so sensitive and variable from team to team in terms of who's going to be the number one or number two guy. You know, I had the best example for for me in Houston, you know, after, I led the team my rookie year um, because we had injuries to Maud Green and Ron Dane, so I got a chance to play quite a bit as a rookie. But when when it came to my sophomore year, the Texans had drafted Steve Slayton at the time, and he was uh, maybe he was a second rounder, and it was sort of instant that he was going to be the number one or number two guy, mm-hmm. which pushes me right as uh, as a younger guy who, who wasn't drafted really wasn't drafted. Either. Team, uh, that pushes me down the line even further. So now, you know, I'm in my second year, and it, I've got to play special teams, or the opportunity window is getting smaller and getting smaller. So I told Daylen, you know, I saw him, and, and he's coming back for his fifth year, I, my, my advice was you know, I would get on as many special teams as possible because what can happen is that when you get to the next level, if you go on drafts, if you get drafted, late, even if you're drafted high, Um, you know, the ability to contribute on special teams is what's going to help with your staying power. You know, I'll point to a guy I played with at Notre Dame, you know, David Pruitt, for example, uh, you know, he was drafted late, uh, to the Broncos and he ended up playing eight or nine, maybe even 10 years in the NFL, you know, went to a couple of Pro Bowls as a special teams guy. And so, you know, that, that to me was really, I think, part of the difference, uh, just in terms of experience going into the NFL that I just quite frankly didn't have.
1: Darius, a two-part question. One, do you think NBC would consider doing the fan feed again for another game? And two, when you're not on the fan feed these days and not raising a family, what are you doing with your life?
0: Got it. Well, uh, I think from my perspective, from everything that I heard from NBC's vantage point was that the fan feed was was really, really top-notch i think that that it, it it did much better than they assumed it, it would and now i think you have, you kind of got to say well part of that was because we're playing boston college and doug's rudy's on the national broadcast <laughs> so i don't think it's a surprise right that as a notre dame fan you say you know what i don't really want to watch this let me <laughs> let me turn on something else if there's that option um, so i think some of that was built in um, I do think that, that it did well enough for NBC to consider to continue to doing this. Um, the challenge always is is you know, how do you how do you adjust these things and make them and improve them? You know, so for example with us during the, the, the game on Saturday, we completely missed uh Lindsay's reverse touchdown. Like I don't know if folks saw that on the broadcast or whatever, but we were talking about something and completely missed it. And so there's certainly ways to build in to kind of minimize that. But um, looking at that element, you're like, "All right, this is obviously something that didn't go as well as we had hoped because we missed a big play that was integral in the game." So, um, but to answer the question directly, I, I do think that they will consider it because it was because it did so well. The challenge is just going to be kind of how you structure it and, and, and minimize some of the uh, some of the, the miscues, if you will, um, from that vantage point. And then for me uh, personally. So I've got a couple things going on. I I, I do work for Notre Dame, so I'm i uh, one of the fundraisers in L.A. I work for development. So I've been in the role about a year and a half now. And I cover a lot of folks uh, in L.A., a lot of great families in L.A. So that t- definitely takes up most of my time. But in addition to that, I still do a, a good number of broadcasting uh, work in the fall for football. So ESPN3, I'm on a number of their games. Um, I'm on a number of Facebook's games for Stadium within the Mountain West Network. So I've got a couple of different employers on the broadcasting side that help kind of round out my schedule. So as a development officer for the university, I come back for maybe three or four games, three or four of the home games during the year. And then the rest of the time I'm able to sprinkle in work um, with some of the other networks as, a, as an analyst. So pretty busy in the fall uh, for sure. Uh, in addition to raising, uh, you know, raising a family with a little guy at, at 16 months now, so we're um, certainly staying busy for sure. It's been it's been fantastic.
2: Well, he did a good job of not waking up while we, while we were recording the podcast, <laughs> so we appreciate that. <laughs>
0: that's right. He was sleeping in the other room right now, so I'm kind of like trying to whisper as much as possible <laughs>
2: for sure. Well, all right, Darius, that's all we have for you. We appreciate you taking time to to talk with us today and sharing your insight.
0: Tyler, Eric, always a pleasure, guys.
2: Thanks. You're listening to the Podigo Podcast presented by Zaxby's. True crime lovers are always looking for new and engaging content.
0: The Already Gone Podcast covers stories from Michigan and the Great Lakes region. Cases you haven't heard before like the Mayo Hunters or
2: the murder of 16-year-old Justin Mello plus better-known cases like the death of Jane Bashara and Illinois' own Lori Dan. Already Gone started in 2016, so there is a big back catalog for you to enjoy. Find Already Gone on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, or your favorite
0: podcatcher.
2: Now it's time for Place Your Bets.
0: How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains?
2: This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. Let's take a shot at some predictions for the Stanford game. First one I have for us, Eric, is over under 250 passing yards for Stanford. Well,
1: that's about all they do well. You know, the way I think that Clark Lee is going to set up his defense, I think they're going to dare Stanford to pass, and then they're going to come after them.
2: Um, I'm going to say maybe just over 250. I'm going to go with under uh, Stanford's averaging 260 Notre Dame is allowing just 153.5 yards of passing. Um, So I will go under. Uh, Notre Dame just seems to find a way to keep people under 250 yards on a fairly regular basis. I think maybe only two teams have passed that mark. So um, I think uh, Notre Dame will be able to continue that against Stanford, although it seems to be Stanford's only really chance to to compete with Notre Dame. Next one is over under 300 passing yards for Notre Dame. I'm going to say –
1: over and the reason i say that is because stanford's past defense is a mess yep. in, on their depth chart projections they don't have paulson Adebo playing this week he didn't play last week against cal he's by far their best defensive player right so i think notre dame is going to attack just kind of like they did with boston college attack their weakness which is the pass defense.
2: Yeah, I'm going to go over as well. I considered the under because the early forecast this week is that it could potentially be raining, um, but I don't know that it's going to be Michigan-level rains out there. So um, I think Notre Dame should be able to still have success passing the ball, um, so I will go over. Next one is, will Ian Book lead Notre Dame in rushing?
1: I'm going to say no, and I can't tell you who is. (laughs) Uh, He's done it the last four games.
2: Hope for a long Braden Lindsey run. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I I think, yeah, exactly. Give Braden Lindsey one touch. He outrushed uh, A.J. Dillon last week from Boston College. That's right. So I, I, I think somebody will get it done. Maybe Tony Jones just, if Notre Dame's got the lead, as I expect him to do at the end of the
2: game, kind of pounding at that, stanford defense i'm gonna go with yes i just think notre dame is going to try to pass the ball so much because i think that'll be the path of least resistance and then there's going to be natural opportunities for book to scramble and get some yardage that way so um i think he will continue i don't think it's gonna be really high it's not gonna be like the duke game um but i think he'll still be able to lead them in rushing just because i i don't know what we're getting from notre dame's running backs at this point or even notre dame's offensive line in the running game either so um, I, I'm just gonna go with the safe bet as of what it's been the recent weeks, and go with yes. All right, next one is over under 44% conversion rate on third down for Notre Dame's offense.
1: I I think they'll be a little bit.
2: Well, that's kind of a high
1: number. I'll did say you, a little bit. Did over. you see
2: what Stanford is allowing? Yeah, I did. <laughs> it's pretty pretty yeah. bad.
1: Which I think, again, given Notre Dame's passing game, you know, with Cole Komet, Chase Claypool, and those guys. I think they can get there against Stanford, yes.
2: Yeah, I'm going over as well. Stanford is allowing 46.9% conversion rate on, on third down as among the worst in the in the country. So um, I think that Notre Dame will be able to take advantage of that and uh, probably be put themselves in some good third down positions as well with being able to move the ball pretty successfully against Stanford. Next one is over under two and a half sacks for Notre Dame's defense. I will
1: say, boy, Stanford has – they're getting some people back. They've been starting a lot of freshmen on their offensive right. line, including Walter Rouse, who was in the mix for Notre Dame yep. at one point. Um, yeah, I'm going to go over. I think Isaiah Foskey
2: being added to that mix is going to to help
1: them in that regard.
2: Yeah, I'm going to go over as well. I think Stanford's going to probably have to pass a lot, too, so that'll increase the opportunities. And uh, Notre Dame will be able to uh, get past that mark. Two, two and a half sacks is actually – right between what Notre Dame is averaging with 2.55 and Stanford's allowing 2.45. So um, I think they're going to, to hit the over there. Last one, a final score prediction for Saturday. Uh, I did not call my bookie, but I'm going to
1: say <laughs> Notre Dame 31, Stanford 14.
2: All right, I have an extra touchdown for Notre Dame there. I have Notre Dame 38, Stanford 14. All right, now it's time for questions.
0: Just tell me when you guys – are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go.
2: You can submit questions to us every week on Twitter. I'm at TJamesNDI, and Eric is at E. ndi. First one we have is from Josh Melton at Joshua Melton. Do you think Khalid Kareem and Myron Tagovailoa-Amosa will play on Saturday? On a related note, do we see any seniors sitting out the bowl game?
1: Okay, let me do the first one first. I saw a tweet from... Jason Adam Malola's dad today, where he kind of said, there you go, uh, opening, you know, kind of like a movie opening kind of thing, look for 57, so who who was, you know, injured last year Yeah, he week didn't get to play himself, right. Uh, but it, I think that's a strong hint that he thinks his son is going to start that particular son. <laughs> uh, he has two Jason. of them on the team, yep. Jason. Uh, but I think Myron might play some. We didn't get the results of the MRI, so I think they're going to be conservative with Myron if they can afford to be. And the way that Jacob Lacey and Jamie Allen Franklin played together last week, I thought that was really positive. And, and uh, Hunter Spears got a little bit of time right. in there. So so I think very limited if Myron plays. I think Khaled Kareem will play.
2: Yeah, He, he goes out – he – i I was I mentioned this in the press box the other day that he I feel like he has left the game and needed trainers to assist him during the game maybe more than anyone that I can remember covering uh, but he always seems to come back so i i I would give him the benefit of the doubt and imagine he would be playing um and then I'm a little skeptical that myron would play it's it's kind of odd that you would be giving someone an mRI if you feel like he's okay. And that even if even if he is there isn't an issue with the MRI, the fact that there's enough of a concern there that they would need to do an MRI would make me think that he would be pretty questionable to play. Um, as for guys sitting out in the bowl game, I don't see that. I think it's also kind of reckless to to speculate that because you're, yeah. you're kind of attacking someone's character or right. questioning someone's character by doing that. So I don't know that I would feel comfortable even um, speculating on that unless I'd had some concrete evidence or proof that guys so I think anyone that's healthy that's a senior would likely play in the bowl game even yeah. though people aren't going to be excited from a fan standpoint of, of potentially playing in the camping world bowl
1: right I, I would agree with that I mean the highest r- draft choice isn't going to play in the camping world bowl right potentially Julian Aquara since he's already injured I know Chase is climbing I can't imagine
2: Chase missing right yeah it. he's another guy you can't you can't keep him out, out of the game he, he gets banged up during games and comes right back and gets yeah. after it all right next question is from irish fan 10 at irish fan 102 stanford is on an acad- academic quarter system when notre dame plays at stanford does that mean stanford players are coming off a week or possibly two without classes could this explain stanford's dominance at home
1: well it it didn't work out for Notre Dame this year when they didn't have classes going into the Michigan game because of fall break. So I'm not sure that would help them. I mean, the one thing that Stanford is very good with is against non-conference teams at home. David Shaw is 17-0, and 0, so he's never lost a non-conference home game. And that goes all the way back to Harbaugh. It's 22 in a row when you extend it. They're the last non-conference team to beat Stanford in Stanford Stadium was Notre Dame with its worst team. The 3-9 and nine team <laughs> won out there in 2007. So I just think Stanford has been good. I mean, I right. think that's been the hardest hurdle, not any little behind-the-scenes thing. They've just been a really good team until this year.
2: Yeah, and I, I did look into Stanford's academic calendar, like a true reporter that I am. Um, Stanford does get. Am I not a true? <laughs> no, no, I didn't say that. Okay. Uh, Stanford does get Thanksgiving week off. Um, but the the quarter of or the semester quarter isn't over yet. Um, I looked into some previous years, and it looked to be the case. It looks like their quarter usually ends early in December, so they might still have some things weighing down on them in terms of projects or stuff like that but it they appear to get the entire week of thanksgiving off every year so maybe that does help them a little bit but like we mentioned it certainly didn't help Notre dame but maybe if you have it every year you maybe you're used to it and you have a routine that you that you know works for yourself
1: or maybe they're out picking squash to feed brian kelly <laughs>
2: there you go next question is from frank sarah at frank sarah three who are the freshmen that can play against stanford and still be eligible for a red shirt Well, I know
1: Tyler's got the rundown. I would say, like a
2: real reporter that I am, the the, the real reporter,
1: (laughs) as a fake reporter as I am, and trying to cut to the chase, the one of significance is Isaiah Foskey. Right. This will be his fourth and final game if he wants to redshirt. He's back in in his stomping grounds. He's from Concord, California, uh, in the Bay Area, and he is a big part of their game plan. in the third down package. So um, that's the real one to watch. They were so conservative with Howard Cross, who is at four games. Right, They did not play him last week when it would have made sense to if they were going to play him in a game. So unless there's an additional injury Saturday, I don't see them crossing that line with Howard Cross. But the real reporter here will tell you the rest <laughs> of the guys.
2: Yeah, and well, to be fair, some of this could be taken with a grain of salt because Notre Dame has had some inconsistencies with his yeah, par- partition report. That's why r- I was participation a, a real reporter because I don't believe them. <laughs> but according to the game notes this week, uh, there's actually one other player that is at three games that could play this week, and that's Hunter Spears. Um, I would think he could potentially play if, for instance, Myron doesn't play. Uh, we did see him a little bit towards the end of the Boston College game. Um, so he could maybe play. There's The number of guys that have played in less than four games, but I would consider them less likely to play. Litchfield, Ajavon, J.D. Bertrand, Brendan Clark, Osita Equanu, Cam Hart, Harrison Leonard, and Nana Osafa-Mensa. Those guys have all played at least in two games so far this year. Um, Cam Hart is the only one of those that has played in three. So maybe if he travels, he could get a chance to get in if it were, if it were a blow. But I don't imagine that any of these guys would, would travel or be yeah, used. I think Cam has been, been banged up. I don't know if he still is, but he has. Been. And then Osita Okwanu I saw played this past week, and So I don't know what that role was, if maybe they got him in on some special teams. So if there, if there was a role there for special teams, because they do have a number of guys like – um, Jack Kaiser and Maris Le- Lufau that had played this year, but they're already at four games. The other guys that are already at four are K.J. Wallace, Kyron Williams, Zeke Carell, Howard Cross that you mentioned, and Andrew Christoffick. So those guys um, likely aren't going supposedly to play. Four you know, games. <laughs> supposedly four um, And then th- there's three guys that are over, Kyle Hamilton, Jay Bramblett, and Jacob Lacey. Um, and then the ones that haven't played at all are Isaiah Rutherford, Kendall Abdul Rahman. John Olmstead and Quinn Carroll, Quinn being injured, so that's what prevented him from playing.
1: And Kendall was injured early in the year. He's healthy now because he uh, he was the he was Malcolm Perry. During oh right, the yeah, Navy during the week. triple option. Yep. Yeah.
2: All right. Next question from Joe at Joey Savatori. Will ND be able to establish a running game against Stanford's defensive front? And what's up with these false start penalties? Are they correctable? And why have they continued throughout the season?
1: Well, Tyler just wrote about the false start penalty, so I'll let him condense that for you. <laughs> um Stanford's better suit on defense is run defense. There have been plenty of teams that have been able to run against them. Again, kind of like Tyler, I'm not super confident in what we're gonna see from the traditional running back position right. in this game. And so I'm I'm kind of my answer is kind of meh. <laughs> when to that. So I'll let Tyler fill you in on the uh, false stuff. Yeah,
2: I, I, like you mentioned, I'm, I'm still a little bit doubtful um, that the running game will have success. I, I think from the beginning of the season, I, I said that it seemed like Jarrett Patterson maybe didn't have the strength to, to kind of dominate guys as a center. Um, and I think that is magnified when you're playing when next to a guy like Trevor Rulin, who isn't necessarily a phys- physically dominant player at this point of his career with all the injuries he's had. Um, and so um, I think Josh Lug should be a good run blocker. I don't know that he's been able to do that um, as well as he'd like to. Um, even Aaron Banks, I don't think has played well enough in the running game. Um, I think he had better moments early in the season and um, has had some moments later in the season that haven't been his best. And I think Liam Eichenberg is a good run blocker, he might, maybe maybe even is their best run blocker of those five right now. Um, the 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 fall start thing is I. have Questioning this clapping cadence. And I think you could probably tell that by the questions I was asking Brian Kelly during his press conference. And it's something that they did use last year. So it's not like it's brand new. Um, and they had less false starts last year. The starting offense last year had 15 false starts in 13 games. And then right now, the starting offense for Notre Dame has 21 false start penalties. They have 29 total, um, but six of those are on the backups um, and two are on the punt team. So I don't know. They have to figure this out. I think. The clapping cadence, it, it seems a little bit unnatural for me for an offensive lineman to just kind of sit there and wait for just one sound um, rather than with a verbal cadence. You sort of say blue 42, set hut, and it could Omaha, be – Omaha, Omaha. Yeah, or, or whatever whatever it may be. But even if you call it on different things, so it could be – the call could be on the color, so as soon as Ian says the color, that's when the ball snapped, or it could be on the number, and so that's when the ball snapped. But you, you kind of get a, a rhythm of how Ian is saying that, or any quarterback – this isn't specific to Ian – um, but he is their quarterback. So to me, I think there's a little they're taking a little bit of the advantage that the offense has in knowing the snap count away from some of the offensive linemen other than the center, who it's probably easiest on him because he just waits for the, the clap and then he snaps it. He's not having to, to maybe do, to think about it as much as he normally wouldn't. I don't know if they even clap more than once. I don't know if they've ever done that. Ian will fake clap his hands because I, I think the defense obviously is just going to watch his hands and see when he's getting ready to clap and then they might start coming but i think that he he doesn't really clap more than once or maybe he does and i just haven't caught on to that but it, it seems like there's less variance in that um and so I, I just think it's 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 i i don't really know why they're doing it i didn't get really get a, a maybe ask a question in a way to get a good answer from Brian Kelly on that because yes, you're not a real reporter <laughs> yeah i take i take my question notes from from eric um so i i don't really know it's something they have to figure out and fix it, it it's a little bit inexcusable in the, that the offensive lineman has to know what, what the process is, um, but even Cole Comet has five false start penalties himself, so it's not just the offensive line. The tight end um, is getting mixed up with this too. So um, Brian Kelly says they mimic things in practice that um, could confuse them because Liam Eikenberg a few weeks ago when we talked to him about it, he said, yeah, you're kind of just sitting there waiting. If so, it's, say the defense yells, and that's like the first big sound you hear, and it kind of – makes you makes you flinch and stuff like that and the defense isn't allowed to do that if the refs think that they're mimicking the snap count but i don't know if the rules change if like if they're yelling and and their name's cadence isn't yelling So they're not mimicking their cadence because their cadence is clapping. So maybe it could only be a penalty if they're clapping. I don't know. I would need to talk to officials on where where that um, would come in. And and certainly the defenses could do things with moving. So there's a lot of stuff going on there. I'm probably more interested than anyone else in the topic. Well, you certainly talked long (laughs) enough on it. I'll add
1: a side (laughs) note here that in the press box, we try to use the clap cadence with Carter Carls, (laughs) and he gets mixed up with the golf clap in the stadium.
2: (laughs) All right, next question is also on the offensive line um, from Loyal Son at Show Me Monty. How would you grade Jeff Quinn's coaching this year in light of penalty and rushing struggles? And then he says, it's tough to fill Harry Heastan's shoes.
1: Well, I certainly agree with the latter. I, I think it would be tough for anybody. Uh, you know, we've had guests on the show that say Harry is the best at any level, anywhere. and But I think Jeff Quinn can be very good. It's hard for me to evaluate him this year. I think he's done a great job in recruiting. The players genuinely seem to feel like he's a good fit. I talked to – didn't use it in my story, but Trevor Rulin gave me a lot of examples of why he likes Jeff Quinn as his position coach. I know Liam Eikenberg does as well. Um, So I – I think it's just very difficult to to grade. I would say, for whatever reason, even when they were all healthy, maybe they weren't as good collectively as they are individually, and I'm not sure what to attribute that to. We'll hand it over to the former offensive (laughs) line.
2: Yeah, I would say I think it is tough to to judge, too. I would probably label Quinn's coaching this year as average. Um, I think – like you mentioned, I don't think this offensive line were was as good as it could be when they were all healthy. When they were all healthy, they still weren't quite as good as they could be, so they weren't necessarily reaching their potential there. But I also think with where they're at now, with the first-year center, two backups playing on the right side of the line, playing without arguably your two best offensive linemen, they're not as bad as they could be. I think they're doing a good job in pass protection still, even though Boston College did get some pressure early in the game. Um, Brian Kelly said yesterday that they were throwing all kinds of different looks that they did not anticipate, and so it took them a while to adjust to that. Um, but offensive line is a very hard thing to replicate at, at a high level for, from year to year. I, I went back and looked up some of he uh some of the stats when Heistand was here. So his second full second full season was 2014, I believe, as the, as an offensive line coach. Notre Dame allowed or rushed for 159 yards per game and allowed 28 sacks. Um, their leading rusher that year is Tarion Fulston, So you talk about running backs. Um, he's not necessarily. Um, an elite running back, but they had Ronnie Martin, Ronnie Stanley, and Nick Martin on those offensive lines. The next year, they had 207 rushing yards per game, so they were way better. CJ Process is the running back. You still have Ronnie Stanley, Nick Martin, Mike McGlinchey, Quentin Nelson. But then 2016, you got Quentin Nelson and Mike McGlinchey on that offensive line. They only rushed for 163 yards per game um, and allowed 28 sacks. And your leading rusher is Josh Adams, who obviously did great the year after that. So I, it's hard. You can be a good coach. I think because I think we all agree Harry stands is a good coach, but you can be a good coach and have inconsistent and and have seasons where you don't necessarily meet your expectations. And one last thing uh, on here, he stand. He's now the Bears' offensive line coach. Last year, um, Cody Whitehair and Charles Leno made the Pro Bowl for the Bears. Last seasons, they they rushed for 121 yards per game, which is 11th in the NFL. Um, and their offensive line is not as good this season. and He's still the coach, um, and they ha- still have Cody Whitehair and Ch- Charles Leno. Um, They've been moving around and dealing with injuries, but they are are only rushing for 78.5 yards per game, which is 29th in the NFL, and they're just not good. So uh, I don't think people are saying Harry Heastan is no longer a good coach. So I I still think Jeff Quinn can be a good coach. This isn't necessarily a great season for him, but I would not be so willing to throw in the towel like I think a lot of fans are right now. Agreed. Next question we have, Eric, is from the Jackal at the underscore Attack. When do they get started on figuring out the cornerback depth problem for next year? Could we see some different guys for Stanford?
1: You know, Brian Kelly the other day said, we'll worry about that next year. I think they'll start to look at things in December. I don't think that uh, um, they're going to mess with anything this week. I mean, I think they just want to win their game this week. But you got some extra practices in December, and that's when their mindset's going to kind of start to shift that way.
2: Yeah, I, I, one guy I'm curious in is Tariq Bracey, How he kind of fought, fell out of the out of the running for for Notre Dame to play a lot. He was playing a lot earlier in the season. Um, they decided they like Dante Vaughn, and tr- certainly Sean Crawford being healthy um, has a lot, has has changed that. And he's turned into a starting quarterback cornerback at times. Um, so there's definitely a lot of questions ahead for them. But yeah, I don't I don't see them um, trying to iron any of those things out. Certainly they're. Pr- Tracking these guys in practice during the season, and certainly maybe some opportunities in bowl prep practices to to evaluate those guys a little bit better, maybe too. But I wouldn't expect it to to be any sort of tangible um, difference um, in the game this weekend. Next question is from Andrew Drive Bilbis at A Drew D. Is there any chance that walk-on cornerback Timmy O'Goro comes back and sees any time on defense next year? He was hyped as a potential contributor in the spring and could help next year with a lack of experience slash depth at corner.
1: Well, Timmy um, looked really good in the spring and at times in August as well. But I think that, you know, you didn't have Dante Vaughn and Sean Crawford participating then. Once they kind of got into the mix – they move Cam Hart over to defense. I think that the thought of Temmy coming back isn't as appealing. You would really have to offer him a scholarship, I think, right. to get him to come back for a fifth year. And I don't think that he would be the best option. I think they would roll with, you know, Tariq Bracey, the the
2: freshmen that they have, the freshmen coming in. Yeah, they like K.J. Wallace. That's that's part of the reason he played and is not playing because they want to redshirt him because they like him and they want to keep his eligibility intact. Right.
1: So I don't see that happening. He didn't continue to escalate uh, once those other guys came back.
2: Yeah, it's not a crazy question. It's not something I really considered, but like you mentioned with the scholarship thing, I think – because they had room during the season to to give a walk on a scholarship and they didn't necessarily do that, at least not publicly. Maybe they did it behind the scenes and they're just not telling anyone about it. Oh, they'd make a video of <laughs> you it. You would think so. As long as, never mind. <laughs> and then uh I, I uh so that makes me think that and I imagine they've already considered this, and so if they if they hadn't already extended a scholarship, it would be a little bit surprising if they would do that after the season. But
1: Well, the numbers are going to be tight next right,
2: year. Right, yeah, they'll be tight, and they, they kind of have those projections sort of worked out, and it doesn't seem like there's a spot for him. But maybe maybe something changes. Next question is from Corey Radio at Corey Radio. With who we're expecting to return next year, how do you think the 2020 offensive and defensive units will compare to 2019? Will there be any drop-offs, and will the 2020 team be poised for a legitimate playoff run?
1: I think they will if they answer the big questions, and that's the case every year. I think even Alabama and Clemson to a certain extent have to answer those kinds of questions, and Ohio State – Notre Dame, they're kind of bigger ifs. But offensively, if, you know, with the offensive line coming back, Cole Komet, you know, you're looking at how quickly the young wide receiver core can grow up and if there really is an answer in the traditional running game. I don't think it's going to bother Notre Dame to not have that against most of their opponents. But when you play Wisconsin and Clemson, you've got to be able to do both. That's where it's going to show up if you can't, run the ball when you need to on defense it's all about the cornerbacks if they can get the right kind of replacements at cornerbacks get them at least adequate they're going to be really good at the other position groups
2: yeah I think the biggest drop-off is is at the secondary um, level And, and even the second safety spot other than Kyle Hamilton I think there's still question marks there certainly they like Isaiah Pryor, and that's why they recruited him to come in as a as a transfer. And um, Houston Griffith has moved back to safety as well. And so you would think that that trio should be should be solid um, for Notre Dame with along with Kyle Hamilton. Um, but um, they still have to prove that on the field. Um, and then the corners are certainly the biggest question mark of the offseason. I think the offensive line will be better. Um, Obviously, I would think probably the same at tight end, considering you'll have the same guys coming back. I think, and
1: you get add Michael Mayer,
2: right? And to, Tommy Tremble's probably a better player um, next year, and Cole Komet could even improve and hopefully be healthy healthy for a full season. Maybe even get voted on Tyler's All American <laughs> team. Uh, you would hope that Ian Book can be more consistent at quarter quarterback. Um, you have to be better at running back. That's that's another concern of, of the off season. Of is, is okay. Are we going to be better? What what? Can they change in, in those players' games to make them better? Um, is it a matter of just healthiness? Because it seems like that seems to come up with, with both Jafar Armstrong and Tony Jones Jr. Um, throughout their careers. So, um, the receiver thing I am a little bit hesitant on. I, um, Chase Claypool is, is a great receiver, and, and we think Kevin Austin can be very good, um, but he's very inexperienced, and that's a big uh, leap that he's going to be needing to make. Um, certainly. Braden Lindsey has plenty of speed, but we haven't seen him really used as very consistently as a receiver. So he's got work to do there. and um, So those are the biggest questions for me. Um, but I, and I think the rest of the defense is you probably could get better play out of everyone. Maybe your defensive end level maybe is the same, but I think there's even a chance that you get better production because Julian Acquire wasn't as productive as maybe you thought he was going to be. And um, they've been playing without Dalen Hayes as well. Next question is from Derek Gerber at GerbsIrish02. I know how Eric feels about questions on uniforms, but come on, don't the gold pants throwbacks look so much better than the mustard or whatever color it is we normally wear? You know,
1: from where I sit in the press box, it all looks pretty similar. It's pretty far away. Um, It definitely didn't strike me as – Something where I went, wow! I need to get some of those. Uh, so sorry because you already Derek. have some of those. Yeah, I already have some of those. Sorry, Derek. I just I didn't get all that fired up about it.
2: Yeah, I I don't hate the the pants they normally wear as much as some other people do. Um, maybe there's more of a middle ground, but um, I, I, I I think there was definitely a clear difference whether or not Eric um, wants to uh, care or not. But I, I think it was a difference, and I think a lot of people do like them. Um, I, I thought it was interesting on the Notre Dame fan feed. Dalen Hayes was asked about the uniforms, and he just said they were kind of. He he said they were all right. So that was about the that's about as critical as we've heard players get when it comes to the the, the special uniforms that they get asked to wear. Um, so he he didn't seem in too love with them. I think he liked the cleats. I think he mentioned the cleats being cool, um, but the jerseys obviously weren't that much different with the, just the mesh looking numbers. Um, so um, it was probably um, the least. Um, distracting alternate uniform that notre dame has has ever worn next question is from nick nation at mr underscore gruby i made my first ever trip to the big house for the no show in ann arbor besides the game being absolutely terrible i also felt the stadium and game day atmosphere were nothing special with that said what are your what are some of your favorite venues you've seen notre dame play in over the years
1: well, the first Michigan night game up there was different for me. You know, I had covered the Big Ten for a long time before I became the Notre Dame football beat writer or even got involved in Irish Sports Report. So I had been up there, and I wasn't really impressed with it. But that first night game when they had the Jumbotrons for the first time and kind of the new acoustics with the suites kind of build up, wow, that was that was special. Um, Ohio Stadium, For the Ohio State series back in the 90s was a big deal, and I'm an Ohio State grad, but I hadn't been there a while, so that was interesting to see for me how that built up. Um, Clemson, Oklahoma, uh, those are a couple of the others. Uh, The bowl experience for the national championship game in 2012, it was electric before the game. Now, it didn't last, but it was electric before the game. Sure. I wasn't at Georgia this year, so Tyler could probably speak to that. Yep,
2: yeah, Georgia was awesome. I think it's probably at the top of the list for me. That was it was pretty cool to be down there. I, I Clemson really high. Um, Florida State, I really like. I thought Florida State was pretty cool um, with the war chant that they were doing, and I was down on the field. for The, the weather end. was cool too. Yeah, I was down on the field for the end of that game, which is obviously a pretty incredible game, and certainly didn't end how Notre Dame fans wanted it to with the the pass interference penalty um oklahoma was great and i think michigan has been good i don't know that it, it, it the atmosphere necessarily blew me away this time i think probably the weather had something to do with that and i think there was a little bit of apathy going into the game for michigan fans i think that certainly probably has changed maybe a little bit after that outcome but um those are those are kind of the ones at the top for me The the i wasn't at the national championship game i was at the college football playoff last year that was pretty cool um <laughs> but everything got off to a weird start when the when the uh, bald eagle got distracted <laughs> and landing on fans. So that was quite the quite the weird moment. But it, that was pretty cool to be down there at AT and T Stadium as well. Next question is from Chris Buckley at Topher Fifteen. West Coast trip coming. What's your go to In and Out Burger order?
1: Well, I am not going to go on the West Coast trip, but if I were, and I happened to In n Out Burger before, um. Uh, I like the cheeseburger with the grilled onions and yep. maybe barbecue sauce on it and just regular fries, and I want to get one of the hats.
2: I like to bring <laughs> the hats back uh, for coworkers, so that's my go-to. Yeah, I'm not out there enough that I know for sure, but I'm pretty sure what I get is the, called a double-double animal style. Um, and uh, I, we've talked about burgers before on the podcast. I think in and out is good. I don't think it's uh, – First thing you get off the plane and do in California, but um, some people will certainly disagree with me there. And skip the fries. The fries are garbage. In and out fries wow. are an embarrassment to French fries. Next question is from Kyle O'Shea at Kyle O'Shea. What's more? What was more embarrassing, the Michigan game or squash? Well, to you, it's the fries at In and Out Burger.
1: You just <laughs> called them embarrassing. Um, I would say the Michigan game, but. We should squash. probably give give people yeah. context that don't, don't Brian know. Brian Kelly was asked during his press conference Monday what his favorite Thanksgiving side dish was, and he said squash. After a
2: very long pause, and he yeah. said it was a tough decision for him, and then he, pounded, he kind of pounded the table and said squash. That's what I, I mean, like.
1: I give him credit for not giving us the answer that would have just kind of gotten him off the hook. If that's <laughs> really what he likes the best, that seemed you know odd to me, but – you know, go for it, Brian. Um, so, but I don't think squash is embarrassing. I
2: just think it's different. Squash can be good, but it it can't be it's, it can't be the best Thanksgiving side dish. It's not que- even in que- the top. I six. I question your other Thanksgiving side dishes if your squash is at the top of the list. Absolutely. <laughs> What's I'm going I'm going uh, stuffing. Um, we do things a little bit differently at the James household. We we do uh, we do dumplings and uh, fried cabbage. Um, i don't know why we necessarily do it on thanksgiving but it's a thanksgiving tradition for our family Um, but mac and cheese mashed potatoes uh green bean casserole I'm, i'm for there's not much at thanksgiving that i'm not enjoying so um i think there are lots of options that brian kelly could have went with that were more appeasing to me at least
1: yeah my mom's sweet potatoes are probably number two for me i'll tell you what number one is stuffing, amazing mashed potatoes and stuff. Number one for me is something that most people don't have at their Thanksgiving table, and that's baked beans. And the backstory story there is my grandpa Pasquale and I were pals. I mean, he was mm-hmm. my hero growing up. And I used to be kind of a picky eater, and my dad, it drove him crazy. So grandpa Pasquale would, at every meal, would have baked beans just so there was always something he knew <laughs> that I liked, and All he right. would always eat them as well. <laughs> So this also happened at Thanksgiving, so now, sure. to honor my grandpa, we still have baked beans Awesome, year. That's yeah.
2: cool. All right, next question we have is also squash-related from not-a-fan-of-sports P- at P-Sully226. The squash thing couldn't have been BK's real answer. It has to be code for something. Give your best guess as to what he's trying to tell us. Uh, P-Sully's theory is he's actually been kidnapped and thought squash was the weirdest logical answer and would tip us off that something is wrong.
1: I mean, maybe he was trying to say that they're going to squash Stanford. That's
2: what I thought of. We're yeah. both cheesy. Yeah.
1: So that, <laughs> uh, or that his favorite sport was squash, and he misunderstood the question.
2: I also think it would be funny if he knew people would freak out about him saying squash and just said it just to, to mess with people. But I, I don't think know. that would be excellent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I wouldn't totally rule that out. Um, it, it, it maybe it, It's almost like uh, Ian Book. I, I, I kind of had a theory running in my head when he said we'll see after the game if he's coming back he just was messing with Notre Dame fans because he's just kind of tired of them so uh, I I don't think that's probably what happened but I thought I I would I would laugh and enjoy if that were the case all right last one we have is from Michael Martin at Michael Martin 78 what are your favorite memories at the South Bend Tribune offices some of them have
1: been the taco bars and I'm serious about that because of How outrageous it got, how over the top we are, and how many people come to these that aren't employees. You know, it used to be just the sports department, then it was the newsroom, (laughs) then people off the streets, and family, and friends, and relatives, Uh, and just the whole extravagance of the taco bar and how good the food actually is. Um, But there are a lot of life events and. I'm going to get too sentimental, <laughs> so I don't know that I can do this. But you know the the Tribune people are like my second family, you know? absolutely. And so
2: <laughs> that's all right, Eric. I
1: I can't I can't finish. That's
2: all right, and yeah. I, I I agree with you. I think that we are a very tight knit group, and I think that um, that's what makes uh, working at the Tribune special. I think part of it's sad that we're leaving the Tribune office, but I think the people that are still getting to move and still work at the Tribune, I think we're not as sad about that because we're all still working together and um, can continue to bring those memories somewhere else. I think the Taco Bars were at the top of my list one one time. I think it was the last Taco Bar we did before Mike Varel left. We went up on the roof at some point. I, I don't know how we didn't get you involved with that, but somehow we didn't. And there was one small thing I thought probably was kind had of – <laughs> Probably had you finished Probably. a Or you in a coma, yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, – one small thing that I thought was kind of cool, kind of a nerdy journalism thing, I, I wasn't at the national championship game, like I mentioned, um, but I was in the office helping out and I was we were debating our our front page headline. We ran a big photo of Theo Riddick being consoled with, by Jamoris Slaughter um, and we were debating whether it would be crushed or crushing, kind of being the, running with the Orange Bowl theme. I'm gonna, and I think we settled with crushing and I don't necessarily know why. We went one way or the other, but I thought it was was kind of cool to be in that discussion and trying to – it's just a small little thing. Obviously, the last two or three letters at the end of the word, what we were debating, but um, to kind of see the detail that goes into that was was kind of a cool moment that was work-related other than all the good memories that we have with our fellow employees and uh, the family members of the employees that we get involved with as well. All right, that's it for this week's episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Leave us a review or rating if you like what you hear. The Pot of Gold podcast is presented each week by Zaxby's. Satisfy your craving for hand-breaded chicken and fresh-made salads. Stop by your neighborhood Zaxby's today or order online at zaxby's.com forward slash podcast. And tire whack, the way tire buying should be. Later this week, Tom Noy and Carter Carls will give you another edition of the Pot of Gold Extra Point. Stick with NDInsider.com for all your pregame and postgame needs for Notre Dame-Stanford.